the work you're doing in each of us, the way that your spirit is changing and molding us, Lord. I pray that uh, we would continue not to, not to dwell upon compliments such as that, Lord, but that whatever it is your spirit is doing in us, that we would continue to follow that, that there would be a cleansing and a purging and a growth, a maturity and a love that came in each one of us. Lord, continue that work this morning. As we look at your word, speak to our hearts. Help us to understand the things that each one of us needs to know. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, that sideline note, uh, December 7th, we just passed Pearl Harbor Day. 77 years. Remarkable, huh? 77 years. Think about, I just was reviewing a number of things, I'm sure, I wasn't paying attention to it, but people sending me emails and just um, the things that went on during World War II and the great industrial push of America to assemble a military and uh, to go. You know, we, we today very often think of the military as being a constant thing. It wasn't that way in our nation. It's been something that's been developed over time. And uh, the response uh, to Pearl Harbor... You ought to look up uh, just like, uh, you know, the, the things that America did in an industrial fashion, the number of ships constructed, the number of uh, soldiers that enlisted, uh, the number of people that were transplants. Remarkable what happened. And it was truly to save the world, to save the world from tyranny, from a madman, a demonic madman. That was going to just destroy the entire world. What a, what a great blessing as we stand here, sit here this morning in freedom to worship Jesus Christ in truth. Because you go to certain places and uh, when the Jewish people hear Christianity, they think Adolf Hitler. Isn't that weird? You know, because he was saying that uh, it was the uh, Jews that had killed the Messiah. And, and they had a whole strange thing about how surely Jesus could not have been Jewish. And that's why they were carrying out some of the atrocities. Crazy. The freedom we have today, 77 years since that moment, I pray the Lord continues to protect that freedom. Genesis 29 is where we are. We've been following the development of Abraham's family. We saw the birth of Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. We saw the deception that went on there uh, between the sons and the great pains that took place as Jacob had used deception with his mother in order to gain the uh, birthright and blessing. And I say again before we move into this study, Jacob was going to receive the birthright and the blessing. That didn't It didn't come about because of the deception. The birthright and the blessing were going to come to him. It is the fact that he used the deception that did nothing but create such great torment in his family, such great division. He's departed from his family. His brother wants to kill him. His mother, trying to avert that tragedy within their family, sends him away to uh, find this wife and now 
he's journeyed, and we pick up at verse 1 of chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. This is his uh, countryman's homeland. This is where Abraham came from. This is grandfather. This is where his mother came from. And there's you know an important lesson throughout all of this in that this family has a relationship with God. The rest of the world at this point is pagan to some degree or another. There are certain pockets that have knowledge of God, but God has chosen Abraham, and he is ministering to this man and his family so that they will be the family of God. They, they will bring the faith that you and I sit here this morning in is going to come through them. So they understand the importance of Jacob finding a wife from within this godly family. It doesn't have anything to do with race. It has everything to do with faith. And the fact that he's now back in his homeland looking for people of the same faith. In verse 2 it says, He looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. And a large stone was on the well's mouth. You may <coughs> want to remember that it says right there, there's a large stone over this. So in verse 3, now all the flocks were gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Uh, they did that uh, for security, for safety. People didn't stumble and fall into the well. Livestock uh, didn't either. It also reserved the well for them. Uh, being that it's a large stone, uh, they didn't have others that were using the resource of the water that was in it for themselves, for their cattle, their sheep, uh, their crops. It reserved the well uh, for those that it belonged to. Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Now, uh, he's asking this, and his reaction uh, to this question is because he doesn't really know where he is. There aren't street signs. He doesn't have GPS. He's not following some kind of directions from his cell phone. He is wandering through the land, following the directions and the advice, and stopping and asking people what direction and where it is. And now he's come to this place, and you know he probably has some degree of understanding or thought that he's reached or close to his destination but it's not until he asks that he knows where he is at so we're we're from here we're from Haran then they said then he said to them do you know Laban the son of Nahor and they said we know him so he said to them is he well and they said he is well and look his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep so in this moment uh, they see the daughter of uh, Laban coming out. Now, this is very reflective of what we saw with Abraham's servant who had gone to find Isaac, a wife, and had retrieved uh, Rebekah back for him. Uh, there are you know, lots of differences within it, and uh, part of that has to do with the fact that Jacob is actually not within God's will at the moment. 
He's, he's living in rebellion to God. He's, he's trying to accomplish God's will for his life through his own means and through rebellion. Rather than trusting the Lord for these fulfillments, he's taking matters into his own hands. So while we simultaneously see very fulfilling things going on in the circumstance, you have to also take notice of the fact that there are very negative aspects to everything that we're reading. It's so much better when you can just read a story like Isaac's, where you know the symbol of the Holy Spirit Abraham's uh, servant has gone out to find a wife and bring it back, or bring her back for uh, you know uh, Isaac in order to be married. Here in this situation, where <coughs> deception and threats of murder and conjoling have taken place in order for him to be in this location, it's always heartbreaking uh, to have to take the blessings and the cursings simultaneously uh, not only within the story but within our own experience sometimes so here's rachel who's coming with the sheep then he said look it is still high day and it is not time for cattle to be gathered together water the sheep and go and feed them and they said we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth then we water the sheep uh, the idea is basically, uh, don't you guys have something better to do? Uh, well, why don't you just finish up what you're doing here and just get out of here? Uh, it may be uh, because he's wanting to have a private conversation with Rachel. He's, he's, he's wanting uh, to perhaps even propose within these circumstances. But uh, he definitely, for whatever reason, wants them to finish their job and go away. And they explained to him, we can't do that, and it's not done this way. Uh, we wait until all the flocks are gathered together, and that may partly be because these may be very young boys that are all together tending the flocks. And, you know, we're talking literally uh, 9, 10, 11-year-old boys, and the big stone is preventing them from getting at the water. Uh, they they work together. They have a method uh, where they get the stone off of the well and uh, get the water out. It may be that uh, the method is we don't do this until we're all together. That's against the rules. We don't open the mouth of the well until everybody's here. For whatever reason, for whatever cause, this isn't how they're normally doing things, and Jacob wants them uh, to be on their way. So uh, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and then they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother brother, mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban with his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban his mother's brother. Uh, again, <coughs> similarities to the story he's certainly heard from his mother and father uh, of how, you know, Rebecca had come 
and she had watered all of the servants' camels and taken care of him and brought him to the house. So there's there's parallels here, but it isn't exactly like what was seen previously. I, I, I hope that, you know, if we've read this many times and we have in our mindset uh, that, you know, Jacob is in the process of falling in love with Rachel. I hope that we're able to sort of back ourselves away from that a little bit and really understand that God has a plan and Jacob is not entirely cooperative with it. He's got his own plans. He's got his own agendas. He's a man who constantly at this stage of his life is gauging everything upon his own wants and desires. Okay, He wants to follow God's plan, but simultaneously he can't get himself out of the program. Uh, that, that inevitably will prove to be challenging for anyone who functions that way. <laughs> Secondly here, he rolled the stone from the well's mouth. We, we, as I pointed out, it's a large stone. Now, whether it was so large that it would have taken, you know, a couple of men to roll it away or just one man versus a whole bunch of young boys, uh, it's probable that at this point he's trying to show his capabilities to this young woman. Uh, that he's taking the moment to say, I too can move the big stone. He wants her to uh, be impressed. He also wants the boy should be on the way. And then he goes right to serving. You, know, you, you see in the previous chapters how Esau was close to Isaac, his father. And Jacob was close to Rebekah, his mother. Uh, Rebekah was the servant. She was the one who did all of that work previously. So he's learned from her servitude, perhaps. And now in this moment, he's at least doing what we saw her do, Ra rather than following the example of the father. He's following the example of his mother, perhaps. He he's at least he's at least doing what she did. You know, he's watering the flock. He's tending to these things. He's making sure. Stones rolled away, and uh, that uh, Laban's sheep are taken care of. It says in verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Now, the kiss might not have had any of much intimacy in it. Uh, we're going to see in the next verses that he meets Laban, and Laban kisses him. Okay, so it's, it's perhaps the standard greeting of the Middle Eastern culture to you know, take a hold of one another's shoulders and then kiss the left and then the right cheek and say you know, shalom or some pleasant greeting uh, to one another. What is very out of the ordinary. The kiss is, is probably, at least to some degree, a little out of the ordinary because they don't really know one another. So... Here comes the kiss and then the weeping. The weeping's de definitely got to make her feel awkward. You know what I'm saying? I mean, stranger, moved big rock, watered sheep, 
just kiss me now is crying. I, it, you know, it's just, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's odd. It leaves her, uh, you know, in a place where, <laughs> you know, even, you know, you know how it is. Sometimes even when you meet people and you're, you're wanting uh, to be accepting of them, but they're just going way over the top. You know, it almost feels like they are, you know, 100% trying to sell themselves to you in friendship. And for whatever reason, you know, he's crying. This is out of the ordinary. Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. So she ran and told her father. And it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. Now, <coughs> Laban's acceptance of Jacob here in this moment, as the circumstances unfold, it, in all probability, is at least partly because he understands the wealth of this family. This, this is a very well-to-do family. They know of the wealth of Abraham. They know of the wealth of Isaac. Uh, they, they saw that firsthand when uh, you know, Eliezer came and retrieved Rebekah for them. And he's providing gold and bracelets and nose rings and, you know, possessions and garments. Wealth was very present. And now he's at least to some degree becoming aware Jacob is the heir. Jacob is the one who's going to receive the birthright and the blessing from his father. He's kind of shown up penniless, but... He is the one who legally, on paper, is now the recipient of all of his family's wealth. So that being in his mind, you get this warm welcome and embrace from Laban. Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And they stayed with him. He stayed with him for a month. Not entirely unusual. I mean, it's a lengthy period of time, but Jacob is in all probability, you know, explaining at least in the best light, you know, maybe he isn't telling him the whole story of the deception and Esau's anger. He's got to, if he's telling him of the inheritance, if he's telling him of the birthright, uh, it, it, the story has probably already gone out about the birth, right? Harry was born first. And heel catcher came behind, and then the prophecy was given that the older would serve the younger. Now the younger shows up at Laban's house, and some discussion probably goes on about inheritance and his position within the family. Uh, we can assume, perhaps to some degree, that he's not telling him the whole story about you know how they accomplished uh, the blessing coming from Isaac to Jacob. So here he stays for a month. He's family and uh, he's relocating. Then 
Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Um, this is essentially Laban saying, Okay, you've been here a month. Looks like you're going to be around, so we ought to work out some kind of rental agreement. If you're going to be staying, you know, a month of free room and board is somewhat understandable since your family and all, but if this is going to be a long-term thing, what kind of arrangements are going to be made? You know, we don't tolerate freeloaders around here, so... How, how would you like to work off your debt is essentially where Laban begins with. And at the same time, he's saying to him, you know, I'm not going to try to take advantage of you. So what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Now, in verse 17, when it says, Leah's eyes were delicate. There is a huge amount of discussion about what that means. Uh, it, it, there are those that say that she had poor eyesight, that her eyes were delicate. <coughs> there are those that go an entirely different direction and say uh, she was somewhat unattractive. And uh, that what's actually being said is she was hard on the eyes. That's, that's perhaps what's being said. Uh, it, it seems to have something to do with her appearance because you have, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. And for all of the argument, the best supported idea is that she wasn't, she wasn't perhaps unattractive. She just wasn't as attractive as Rachel. Uh, I mean, you know, the... Uh, Hebrew scholars are saying, why even bother putting the contrast in there if it didn't have something to do with Leah's appearance? So either way, here she is in this compromised position that Rachel is more clearly more beautiful than her. In verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your daughter. Now, seven years. This is essentially a dowry. Now, if that just sounds like some medieval thing, it certainly is an ancient thing. But a dowry was paid because as long as a father had a daughter in his home, she was a financial asset to his home. She worked, she provided income, she bettered the household. If he's going to lose the asset of his daughter in marriage, then he needs to be compensated was the idea. Now, secondly, the culture very much, especially at this time, it began to change after this, but especially at this time, the father was required to take the money and enrich the home. It, it wasn't that they took the money and then just finally got you know, the 72-inch flat screen they were always hoping for. They, they, they were required to build the household up in such a way 
that if the unthinkable occurred and this woman went through a divorce and came back home, uh, she would never be married again. Uh, widows in this culture were rarely married again. Rarely. If a woman had been with another man, uh, the thought was, well, that was her marriage. And that came to an end, and marriage is now off the plate for her. If she was divorced, no one wanted to be with her. The culture was, you know, we we've, you know, we think of it perhaps, you know, oh, we're so much more accepting in culture. The idea was, and, and don't take this the wrong way, if you've been through separation or divorce, the idea was if you haven't been raised in a home by a family that has taught you well enough to maintain a marriage that you went through a divorce, no one else is going to want you. That, that's, how, that's how cut and dry things were in this culture. So if she came back home, the dowry that had been paid was supposed to have enriched the home so she had a better place to come back to because she was going to be there the rest of her life. She had something that would make provision for her. Now, the thought that he's going to pay out seven years' wages, that's massive. That's huge. And it goes two directions. The first thing is, he's showing us that he's come penniless. Okay, He doesn't say, well, I'll give you these cattle and this much money and all of these garments and I'll work for you for two years. He has to put the whole thing out in front as labor. Even putting it out in labor would have probably been so, something more along the lines of three or four years. Four years max. To say seven is probably because he understands Laban and he's thinking, I want to put the offer down in such a way that, that there won't be any bartering at all. Laban is just going to agree to this. I'm going to go so completely over the top that when this man hears this, he's going to automatically agree. He does not want to lose the opportunity to have Rachel as wife. It, it is his heart's commitment. You know, you think about that. If if you could purchase a car for, you know, I don't mean to compare women in cars. Forgive me for that. Uh, if you could purchase a car uh, with four years wages, max, really nice, really beautiful, wonderful car, brand new, and you sat down at the table and said, no, what I'd really like to do is pay you seven years wages. And that's the level of negotiating that's going on. Of course, the salesman is going to be like, absolutely, let's fill out the paperwork right now. That, that's where Laban is at with this whole negotiation. Is It's an over-the-top thing, and yes, we, we will definitely do this. I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Seven years passed and he just seemed to float through them in his own mind. He was so in love with this woman that the hopeful expectation of being with her, the assurance of being with her someday, made the seven years seem like a light burden. I think we can all identify 
might not be marriage or a relationship, but there are certain things in life that if we've got to do it for five minutes, it's overwhelming. There are other things that if we got the opportunity to do it for five days straight, we would be enthralled with the possibilities. This man is truly in love with Rachel. The, the thoughts of serving seven years to him seemed a very short period of time in order to be with her. There's something very, very significant <clears throat> to learn there. Our relationship with our spouse is supposed to be reflective of our relationship with God. Secondly, it's supposed to be the outcome of our relationship with God. It's supposed to be the outcome. We are supposed to, first of all, have a relationship with the Lord that leads us into such a place of growth and maturity that we're capable of functioning inside our marriage in the fulfilled manner that the Lord prescribes. You know, we should lay down our lives for our wives, right, brothers? We should love our wives as Christ loved the church. It is challenging, right? If they ask us to pick up our socks, it seems burdensome sometimes. That's reflective of where we're at in our relationship with the Lord. It has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with our relationship with our spouse. If, if we are where we should be with the Lord, then whatever request comes from our spouse should be relatively unencumbered. Our relationship with the Lord, that sets the mood for him. You know what I'm talking about. You've had an aggravating boss, a frustrating situation. When you're where you should be with the Lord, those things seem easy. When you're not, you can't bear them for a moment. It's just more than you can possibly tolerate. If we walk with the Lord properly, then our marriage reflects that. It isn't a condemnation. That's an encouragement. 21, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in to her. He's held patience. He's waited. But now he's fulfilled that time, so let's remove the restraints. Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her, that is Jacob, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as maid. It came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? You might want to underline that statement. Why then have you deceived me? This is an example of Jacob reaping what he had sown. It's a very direct result. Jacob exchanged the younger for the older. Laban just exchanged the older for the younger. 
It's got to be a bone-chilling realization. When you realize, oh, the very thing I have done to other people just happened to me. That has got to be absolutely unnerving to experience in the moment. It's not God's plan to use deception in order to fulfill His will in Jacob's life. It was not God's plan. It's important to realize that when you're reading <coughs> Jacob and Esau, you cannot look at that situation and say, well, the prophecy was given, so surely this is God's will. It, why, why is God speaking so negatively of it, bringing punishment upon it, and correcting him so sternly later? He's got to purge this deception out of his life. And this is actually where he enrolls in the school of hard knocks and begins to learn the lessons. This is, this is no deception in your life 101. That's what that he, he just took the first test and failed. Failed completely. He just got his test back with a giant F on it. He can't believe it. He can't believe it. He, he worked as hard as he could with his mother, right? Preparing the meal, putting the skins on, doing all. And now, right? Because you, you get the impression that like he knows how bad it was. It's not until this moment, it's not until this moment that he gets that graded paper back. And he's realizing, I checked every single box wrong. I've answered everything the wrong way. What a painful experience. Of course, we know Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Oh, put the things of the flesh away. Pursue that which is spiritual. Spend your time in the Word. Listen to teachings of God's Word. Listen to worship and praise music. Fellowship with believers. Build a spiritual life for yourself. Invest in that which is spiritual. The pains of reaping from the flesh. 29.26 Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Lies. Not true. Nothing but an excuse. That was commonly done in this culture at this time. Marrying out of order. It didn't have anything to do. Nope, sorry. First has to, the oldest one has to be married first. Ladies, what a drag that would be, right? Nope, sorry. In this family, we only we, we marry them off, oldest to youngest. You're the first guy to show up. Your only choice is daughter number one. <coughs> right? Laban's lying. 29-27. Fulfill her week. Now, you might want to, serious student of the scripture, 
make careful note of this verse in regard to the book of Daniel. Because he's going to tell us the seven-year period of time is a week. So this week that he's referring to, when you're reading Daniel and you're talking about those weeks of years that take place, and the 360 you know, years that are going to transpire, this is one of those proof texts that tell us it was commonly interpreted that way by the, the ancient world. So fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. No bargain, right? You serve seven years, that was a little excessive. We don't normally marry our daughters off for seven years of service. We usually do it for three or four. But since you thought you were getting Rachel and you got Leah instead, now I'll just make you serve three or four years. How about that? No, no negotiating. <laughs> seven years. You named your price seven years is what you, what you pay for my daughters. So, so it's going to be another seven. Uh, this has got to be one of those moments where Jacob just grabs his head and wants to howl. The thought of, look what I have done to myself. Not only have I experienced this deception, now to get to the goal that I desire, I'm going to have to go through the gauntlet for another seven years. This is intense, what he's going through. He's now working on his master's degree from the School of Hard Knocks. 29, 28. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as wife. Laban gave his maid, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as a maid. Laban got what he wanted. Both of his daughters married. He has no idea what it's going to cost him. Laban is thinking that he's clever, like Jacob thought he was clever, and now it's going to cost Laban also. Unfortunately, sometimes we get what we want. Got to really consider whether what we want is godly or not. 30. Then Jacob also went into Rachel. He also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. That isn't to say that he was with Rachel before the completion of the seven years. It is to say that it was seven years that passed before he was with her. The cost of deception. Now we see Jacob's children. 29.31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. When a wife is unloved by her husband, she should find love and fulfillment in the Lord. God is capable of meeting the needs of a spouse. Regardless of how challenging a marriage may be, if we're continuously on our face before the Lord, the Lord will meet us there. He will cause us to have that contentment. If we aren't seeking the Lord, 
if we're not seeking the Lord, then the discontentment is going to grow. And then it becomes nothing but a conflict between husband and wife. Only in seeking the Lord is that fire quenched. So Leah conceived and bore a son, verse 32. She called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. The name Reuben, the Lord has seen my misery. Think about that. Child is born. Jacob arrives. And what is the child's name? The child's name is the Lord has seen my misery. It's very much like we might think of Native American cultures. It isn't that you would just say Reuben. We hear that and that's sort of a meaningless collection of vowels and consonants as far as definition goes. When they said Reuben, it was literally them saying, the Lord has seen my misery. What's his name? The Lord has seen my misery. I wonder if she said that with a sneer. I wonder if years later, when there was conflict in the home, and she was calling to Reuben, who was just outside the room, if she made the point to look over and make eye contact with Jacob and shout out, The Lord has seen my misery! To bring the child into the room. It's very easy to put a sharp edge on anything we say. Anything we say. It's interesting how phrases can be reinterpreted. Unfortunately, Leah doesn't know the Lord the way that she should. Isaiah 54, 5 says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. How much better than hanging out with scoundrel? Think about it. You've got the Lord to see my misery, but scoundrel is who you're married to. That's his name. Heel catcher. One who comes from behind and causes others to stumble. Right? When she fell in love with him, she probably wasn't thinking, oh, this is really his personality. Now she's getting to know his personality. You know, does she say his name that way? Hey. Heel catcher. The bitterness pouring out of her mouth. She's missing, she's missing the Lord's fulfillment in her life. 20, uh, excuse me, 33. Then she conceived again, bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am loved. He has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, right? <coughs> the Lord has heard that I am unloved. That's literally his name. The Lord has heard I am unloved. Ah, the pain expressed in this woman's life. It's an unfortunate commentary, but it's the truth. Mostly men, but women also, often are willing to have sex completely apart from love. They are uh, engaging 
in intercourse without any intimacy of heart whatsoever. Totally selfish in their approach. This man, we're told, does not love this woman. And yet, she continues to have children by him. How painful an experience. She conceived again, bore a son, and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me. Attached to me is the name here. Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, attached to me. And again, no result in the husband. Zero, zero fulfillment in the relationship. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing children. Hear me in this. There are just a couple things to pay attention to as we close. She finally gets it right. She shifts her focus from the man to the maker. Once her eyes are on her maker, then she's fulfilled. Something that's very painful to examine in this passage of Scripture. We all focus on Jacob and Rachel. <clears throat> There's a whole bunch of selfishness in both of their lives that we can discover as we move along. And most interesting to me is the most important tribes of the twelve come through Leah. Levi and Judah. And more significantly than even that is the fact that the Messiah comes through Leah. When you consider all the manipulation, all of the deception, all of the selfishness that goes on here, and we very often, from our position of observation, sort of are rooting for Jacob and Rachel. When realistically, Leah is much like so many of us. There are those that are so much more attractive that the world seems to love. We seem to be left behind. We seem to be rejected. We seem to put our hand to the effort over and over again, and it just fails, and the bitterness pours out of our heart until we come to that place where we worship God. When we surrender to life's circumstances and we find our fulfillment in God, Oh, the fruit that comes out of that. The priesthood out of the tribe of Levi and the kingly line of David and the Messiah come out of Judah. What an incredible blessing, you guys. When we look at ourselves and we just sink in our sorrow over all we've had to experience, if we'll rise above that, and become people of praise. And I mean constant, continuous praise. Whatever our circumstances may be, He's worthy of it. Amen?
Let us surrender our lives to him. Well, we'll pick up in chapter 30 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray together. Father, we pray that you would help this message sink into our own hearts. Whatever our role is, to whatever degree we've been Leah, whatever degree we've been Jacob, Laban, Rachel, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Lord, Help us to be people who love and respect the birthright. The fact that you've called us children of God. How remarkable. Lord, help us to not just focus on the blessing like Esau, who pursued the things of the world and wept over the fact that he didn't have your blessing in his life. May we be people of repentance who follow you, who see your will accomplished in our lives through your efforts, not our own. Guide us by the strength and the wisdom of your Holy Spirit. Keep us in the way of everlasting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.